These are unspeakable riches that we have received from Jesus Christ, our Savior, who had everything in heaven. All the glory, all the praise belong to Him. All the position, all the authority, the power, all possessions, Everything in the created universe belonged to Him. There was nothing over which He did not say, This is mine. And He did not believe it to be something to be grasped and held on to. And in humility, He laid it aside. He exchanged His riches for poverty on this earth. Becoming the poorest of the poor. Becoming overlooked, despised, rejected by those whom He created, maintained, and sustained. So that we who are poverty stricken might inherit the riches of glory that are to be found in Him. This is our amazing Savior, our Father. And we draw our attention to Him this morning, for this evening, for there is nothing else that is worthy of our attention. Many things that are competing for our desires and our wants, our minds at this time, but only one thing is worthy, and it is the crucified Savior, exchanging our sin for His righteousness our poverty for His wealth. Might we find joy in Him as we worship? Might we be transformed by this Word as You guide us through it? And might our hearts delight in Him as we come to the table that remembers Him? It's all about Him. Might you and He be satisfied as we continue in our worship? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Facts reflect the reality of a condition. They are true. They can be believed. But interpretations of facts are variable, inconsistent, and at times inaccurate and invariably not to be trusted. One husband was complaining to his wife on one occasion about their children, suggesting they are never going to grow up. The wife responded, just a minute, let me show you something. And she went to a box and pulled out a well-worn booklet, tablet, a yellowing diary. It was from the year 1945. She opened her book, her diary, to a particularly bad day. I quote, May 7th. Terrible time in school. Flunked the math quiz. Nancy bragged about her new bike. Why can't I have one? I am bored. Bored? Bored! Nothing important ever happens. Oh yes, P.S. Today is V.E. Day. The war is over in Europe. The facts of her life... And the situation in Europe were both true. 
Her perspective was horribly skewed and inaccurate. What she saw was accurate, but she wasn't thinking accurately about it in right ways. On Good Friday, the disciples and the crowd around Jesus had many of the facts correct, but they both misinterpreted those facts. And then in His grace, Jesus corrected them both in the same way with the same truth, with the perspective of God. One of the reasons, brothers and sisters, that we are sometimes prone to discouragement and despondency is that we are seeing the reality of our circumstances correctly, but we are interpreting them wrongly. And that happened for both the disciples and the crowds at Jesus' arrest. As we come to Good Friday and the communion table, let's remember the facts of the night, but let's remember them according to the perspective of God. Notice this evening from Matthew chapter 26, three perspectives about the arrest of Jesus. Three perspectives about the arrest of Jesus. First of all, Jesus' arrest from the perspective of the disciples. And we might sum up their perspective this way. It's all gone wrong. We see this in verses 47 to 53. Think about the events of that evening. Jesus had washed the feet of the disciples in the upper room and they had partaken of the Passover meal, which would later be transformed into the Lord's Supper. He had said something mysterious to Judas about doing what you need to do. And then Judas had vanished, taken off and left. He taught the disciples at length in the upper room, including some mysterious talk to them about going away and just just what was that all about? And then he had taken them to the Mount of Olives to pray and secluded himself there in prayer. And after having to wake up Peter and James and John three times, he suddenly said, verse 46, get up, it's time to go. And after an evening of stunning statements, he announces this, the one who betrays me is at hand. Of everything that had Jesus had said in the upper room to the disciples on that night, in every way that He had confounded them and that they walked away conflicted, this had to be the most stunning thing that He said. Things were not going the way the disciples anticipated they would go. And then we come to verse 47. And while He was still speaking, while the words... The one who betrays me is at hand. While he was still saying that, behold, Judas, Judas has gone, now he's back. One of the twelve came up, accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, the ones who were coming from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Here is a betrayer, not just, not just a betrayer, but but a betrayer that is surrounded by a significant force that is aligned against Jesus and the eleven. The opposition to Jesus and the eleven is significant, both in number and in, to use a 21st century term, firepower. They had weaponry that the disciples couldn't imagine having on their own. As we read this story, as we read that verse even, we are two millennia after the event, but even as he wrote it, Matthew was more than two decades after the event that he writes about. And I want you to notice how he identifies Judas. 
Judas, one of the twelve. Judas had left earlier that evening. Judas was coming now with an act of betrayal. He's already been identified by Jesus as a betrayer. This act of betrayal is of such magnitude that he would never return to the disciples and in fact within hours would be dead from suicide. Yet Matthew, two decades after the event, still identifies him as one of the twelve and Matthew's not alone. Every other gospel writer does the same thing. It's as if two decades after the fact, they still cannot get past the fact that one of us did this. It's just as horrific in a way that is unimaginable to Matthew and the others. Jesus was a public figure. He's well known, been traveling widely. But we have to remember that there were no videographers at the time. There were no bloggers or vloggers at the time. There was no social media at the time. There were not even anything as archaic as newspapers with pictures in them at the time. It was dark at night. And so it's not surprising that Judas needed to identify Jesus to single him out for those who would come and take him captive. And so he identifies Jesus with the term of recognition of Jesus' position. He calls him rabbi, teacher, and he kisses him. That kiss is a further shock to the disciples. It's a, it's a figure, it's an action of affection, and it's an affectionate action that is traitorous. You can almost hear in the action just how dumbfounded Matthew is. Two decades after this. And Jesus in something akin to what he says in verse 46. When he said behold the one who betrays me is at hand. He he almost seems resigned to it in verse 46. And we see the same kind of resignation in verse 50. Jesus says to him friend do what you have come for. Don't think that he's resigned to this fate. He's about to turn the tables on the disciples. He's about to turn the tables on the crowd. He's about to give the the true perspective of what's happening in this moment. But do understand this, that even though Judas is engaging in the most traitorous act leading to the worst sin in the history of humanity, Jesus addresses him with grace. He calls him friend. It's not the typical word that would express love for another kind of person. It's not a brotherly term, yet... Yet it is a term that means something like companion, comrade. It's a term of grace. It it is certainly anything but a term of hostility. Jesus had offered to Judas to be his friend. He had earlier, even on that evening, offered to be his savior. And now at the act of betrayal, he is still speaking to Judas in terms of grace. It all seems to be going so wrong. Somebody's got to do something. And who do you think is going to act? Verse 51. Behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. It's Peter that's going to act. It's, uh, it's Peter. Now, 
Matthew doesn't tell us it's Peter, but John rats him out in his account of it. And if you're reading this carefully, you understand, Judas, excuse me, if you read this carefully, you understand, Peter's here to save Jesus, but he grabs the sword, and in his haste, his aim isn't too good. He doesn't get the neck, he gets the ear. If Jesus is depending on Peter, he's in trouble. And instead of getting affirmation from Jesus, instead of getting approval from Jesus, instead of getting further resistance from the other ten disciples that are with Him, instead of action being taken and insurrection being mounted, Peter receives a twofold rebuke from Jesus. Verse 52, Jesus says to him, Put your sword back in its place. Because all those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Peter, if you're going to If you're going to take action against the army, you're going to have to live with the consequences of acting against the government. And understand that you may be put to death for your act of insurrection against the government. Stop it. That's not the way to do it. It's not accomplishing my purposes. And then in verse 53, in a second rebuke, Jesus reminds Peter of who Jesus is. Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father, and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels. Peter, I don't need you. I've got my Father. Peter, I don't need you. Peter, you need me to come alongside you to help you. Peter, I have the Father. I have access to the heavenly throne. I can go where no man can go. We're going to see this on Sunday morning. I can take from the Father what no man can take. If I were simply to ask, I could get 12 legions of angels. A legion is about 12,000 angels. 72,000 angels at my disposal. And... Just in case you're wondering, just what can one angel do? Remember Isaiah 37, 36? One angel takes out 185,000 Assyrians in one night. That's one angel. 72,000 angels. Jesus' problem is not lack of firepower. He has everything he needs. Peter had acted rashly, forgetting the purpose of Christ and the authority of Christ. And his actions reveal the kind of despair that the disciples were experiencing on this night. Despair that ended up in Judas taking his own life. Despair that led at the end of this chapter, verse 75, to Peter being racked with grief and immense sorrow, guilt, condemnation, Unrelenting condemnation in that moment. All of the disciples fled from Jesus with the exception of the Apostle John. On on resurrection morning, two days later, they would be secluded by themselves. And I think if we were to use the word disconsolate, that would be wholly inadequate because in their minds, everything has gone absolutely as badly as it possibly could. It's all wrong. To be a human being is a sufferer. Many of you have suffered greatly. You know what it means to weep tears of bitterness. But for the eleven on that night, 
that kind of suffering is true except far more. Everything is lost. Their worlds are shattered and they are absolutely hopeless. And they acted as if Jesus Christ would not be raised. That's how they perceived the events that they saw. Notice verse 56 at the end. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Disconsolate, heartsick, broken. There's a second perspective in this account. We see it in verses 47 to 53. It's the perspective of the crowds. Jesus is defeated. We've got him. Verse 47 tells us that a crowd arrived, but it's helpful to remember the nature of that crowd. That crowd has the authority of all of the religious leaders, the chief priests and the elders, and they had gathered up a police force along with them. People who were coming with swords and clubs. This was a political armament, a a governmental armament, if you will. It is not a spontaneous crowd that is gathered. The events of this night were carefully planned like a military attack by the religious leaders in the Sanhedrin. They had a detachment of police that they carefully armed to take Jesus and had the support of the people that they manipulated against Jesus. We know that from the next chapter, verse 19 and 20 of the next chapter. While he was sitting at the judgment seat, Pilate, his wife, sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do this man, with this man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and put Jesus to the death. This is a crowd that has been manipulated, persuaded, compelled by the religious establishment. And they had gathered around Jesus. This is the one time. This is the final time. They're finally going to get him. This is not the first time they've attempted to get him. We find a number of accounts In the rest of the Gospels, John 7, on three different occasions there, they had attempted to arrest Jesus. They had been unable to accomplish it. This is their carefully planned attempt. This is their most significant attempt to get, get a hold of Jesus. And notice verse 50. They came and they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. It's not in the text. It's in the white spaces. But it takes very little imagination to to hear them say, we got him. Finally, and they take him into custody, something they had been unable to do any other time they had attempted to take him or, or kill him. They approach Jesus, the night unfolds, and they have to be thinking, finally, we win. There was nothing in this initial approach, including Jesus' non-confrontational response that indicated that they would lose. He appeared from their perspective to simply give in to them. It's all over. They've got him. But neither the disciples nor the crowds rightly evaluated the events of that evening. There's a third perspective in this story. It is Jesus' arrest from his perspective. And his perspective is simply this. Everything has gone exactly to plan. It's all gone exactly right. 
Both the disciples and the crowd misinterpreted what happened on that evening, but Jesus corrected the twelve first, starting in verse 54, by saying this, How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? Jesus' words are a response to Peter's rash action of taking the sword and trying to kill Malchus. Jesus would not use governmental force or use civil acts of resistance to overcome his attackers. Jesus would not use all of the eternal and infinite resources at his disposal. Why? Why not? This is the most unrighteous action that has ever taken place on the face of this earth, the crucifixion of Jesus. Why would he not do something that is righteous against this horrific unrighteousness? Because he was submissive to the word of God, which had revealed that God's plan was for him to die this kind of death. Notice what Jesus says. It must happen this way. When Jesus says it must happen, he means it is a logical necessity There is no circumventing this plan. There is no exception to this plan which God has decreed that a Messiah and a Savior, His Messiah, His Savior, His Son, must die, must suffer for sin. In fact, as you read the Gospels, you find the disciples perplexed about all kinds of things on multiple occasions, but the thing that perplexed them the very most was Jesus' repeated attention to this very fact that he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer, he must die. He must be put in a tomb, he must be put in a grave, he must be resurrected on the third day. It's not just Jesus that taught this, the Old Testament as well taught this. Psalm 22 prophesied that the Father would forsake the Son. Psalm 41 prophesied that a friend would betray the Messiah. Isaiah 53 prophesied that the suffering, the suffering death of the Messianic servant, the, the law demanded the sacrifice of death to atone for sin. My friend, if you are here this evening, and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you are attempting to atone for your sin on your own behalf, by your own power and by your own strength. You are attempting, as so many say it, to forgive yourself. And you cannot do it. You cannot do it in a way that would be satisfying to God, pleasing to God, and allow you to be freed from your sin and to be freed from the penalty of your sin. But Jesus Christ did. What you cannot do by dying on the cross. He did not die for his own sin, for he had not had no sin. He was the only perfect man and he fully kept every commandment of God, every aspect of the full law of God. He kept perfectly. He didn't die for himself. He died for you and he died for me. He died for all those who would believe in Him for the forgiveness of their sins. And friends, that is what is necessary about His death. If anyone would ever survive their sin and be made right with God, it would take the death of the suffering servant to accomplish it. And friend, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior this evening, this is what you must do. You must believe that Jesus alone...
can pay the penalty of your sin. Jesus alone can free you and liberate you from your sin. Jesus alone is worth living for for the rest of your life. And if you do not believe in Him yet, I compel you, I urge you to turn away from your sin, repent of your sin as the Bible word, and turn to God in faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus corrects the disciples. It must happen in this way. And in verses 55 and 56, Jesus also answers the crowd in a very similar way. Notice what he says, verse 55, Jesus says to them, to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? You're going to treat me just like any other man? Why didn't you do it any other time? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me. It's, I, think, I think it's a tacit, a tacit statement to the crowd saying, you're not doing this because you can do it, because you've tried before and you couldn't do it. This isn't about your power. This is about my submission. And then he says the same thing to the crowds that he has said to the disciples. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. This was God's sovereign, divinely revealed plan. No man did this. God did this to provide salvation and freedom for sinners. It was a divine necessity for Christ to die. God decreed it. God willed it. God made it necessary. Someone has said, Jesus must drink the cup which the Father gave Him. Jesus Christ left heaven, putting on the clothing of, clothing of manhood, went to the temple as a 12-year-old, called the disciples as a 30-year-old, preached the Sermon on the Mount, healed some sick people, raised Lazarus from the dead, entered Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday, knowing the entire time that it was necessary for him to be rejected and to die on the cross on that Friday at the hands of his betrayers. So on this night, Jesus was betrayed, rejected, taken to trial, and then the cross and then death. And all of it was necessary. Why was it necessary? Because if there was no rejection, there was no suffering. And if there was no suffering, there was no death. And if there was no death, there was no resurrection. And if there was no resurrection, then there was no victory over sin and Satan. And if there was no victory over sin and Satan, then there was and is no hope for him and no hope for us. Well, all of this was necessary. Don't imagine that Jesus begrudged it. While it was the Father's plan... Jesus is in union and harmony with the Father in this plan. We'll see this in a few weeks. He did it for the joy set before Him. Hebrews 12. He did it with joy because of His love for the Father and because of His love for the people that He was redeeming. When we read the accounts of the rejection of Jesus Christ, there should be at least two responses. We should be horrified that those who have heard the clear declaration of Jesus Christ and about the glory of God and what Christ had seen in heaven rejected Him outright. They rejected Him. What a tragedy. 
But a second response is also this. What grace? What grace that God decreed and used the disobedience of men to provide the very means by which some would come to salvation while we were still enemies. Christ died for us. He had to die for us. And to die for us, He had to be rejected. That was both for His joy and for our joy. As we come to this table of communion, remembering Christ's death some 2,000 years ago, remember the necessity of His death. He had to die to atone for sin. And remember His joy in accomplishing the divine necessity. Our Father, we thank You for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank You for the remembrance this evening of His death. We talk often about His death. We are unafraid to talk about the blood of Christ and the necessity of His death. We're not afraid to talk about His sacrifice. For this is... This is our lifeblood, His blood for our blood, His life exchanged for our death so that we might have His life. All of this was necessary. Horrific, painful, astounding, beyond our comprehension. God, wrathful, Against God. How can it be? And yet this is the necessity to accomplish our salvation. And this is our Savior. Who does it with intentional purpose. And with joy. Might we be transfixed by this Savior. This evening, this weekend. And for days and years ahead as we contemplate the wonder of the necessity of His death. In His name we pray. Amen.